Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Playbridge podcast. This is your host, Ruffin. I hope everyone enjoyed their 4th of July holiday last week. Since we missed an episode, we are launching two exciting episodes this week. Today, starting with Madeline Darcy. She is the founder and GP of Kaya Ventures. Kaya Ventures is an early stage VC firm building a healthier, happier, and more connected future. Prior to launching Kaya Ventures, Madeline was a VP at Visible Ventures, a Harvard Business School graduate, and a consultant at Oliver Wyman. I learned so much from my conversation with Madeline, and I'm just so excited to share. I hope you guys enjoy. Hi, Madeline. Welcome to the show. So excited to talk with you today and have you on. First of all, how is your day going and where are you joining us from? Thank you, Ruffin. It's going very well and I'm glad to be here. I am joining from Los Angeles in California. Awesome. So you started your career at 14 as a crew member at McDonald's and then you went on to work store operations at Disney and then as a campus rep for Apple. So how did your childhood and early work experiences impact your career? Absolutely. I mean, it's it's funny to hear it in sounding as a career starting at 14. I will say at that stage, I was just trying to make money to get by. And I think, frankly, the same continued on through college. I think in in that way, um, so I grew up in a very large family. I'm one of 13 children in a blended family, which certainly shapes you from the aspect of being a caretaker for about as long as one can remember. Frankly, I would also say that the younger children are much smarter than I and they learn much faster. But I think I took the same thing for the workforce. It was always who can you learn from and and who will enable you to grow. And funnily enough, like looking back, I, I went on to do my MBA and so many of the experiences that I learned from were actually many of those that I spent as a frontline worker versus someone more working with C-suite. It was how do corporate policies actually impact you? Meaning, what does it mean when a company says that you ought to be working overtime or on holidays or don't have control of your shift? How does that impact your family? And I think those are really important lessons to me. And I think as you think then about scaling organizations and very people forward organizations, it really shapes how you think as a leader and how you treat people going forward when you remember not too long ago being in the same side. 13 siblings, that is a large family. Where did you fall in line? The oldest or middle or on the I'm, younger? I mean, I feel like most of us are in the middle statistically. Um, I am I am one of the eldest girls. Um, and I say that because actually I think women take on a, a lot of the responsibility and mature a bit earlier. So I was chief sandwich maker in the uh, lunch order scheme. I am the oldest of three girls. And I feel like being the oldest, you kind of have to like pave the way and like learn everything as you go versus being younger. You're like, I have someone to follow in their footsteps. So very cool. So after graduating from UT Austin, you started as a consultant for Oliver Weinman before pursuing your MBA at Harvard Business School. I'm curious, why did you decide to pursue your MBA? Absolutely. So funnily enough, like I, I did come into my MBA with a business background. I was largely working with Fortune 100 executives, leading M&A initiatives, thinking about corporate strategy and really enjoyed it. That being said, despite the fact that I could model well, so much of my consulting career was very, um, was very like wide and narrow at the same time, meaning you would go into a company and be very narrowly focused on supply chain, or you would go into another company and be very narrowly focused on target acquisitions, such that 
when I actually looked up at the folks leading great companies, the CEOs, they had such a amazing understanding of what the company looked like almost as an orchestra, right? So how did marketing work with finance and supply chain and technology and all the other aspects to really create something bigger than some of their parts versus having a narrow view by function or by industry, whatever that might look like. So for me, frankly, it was how do I get a broader view as a general manager to understand how different parts of businesses work together? And then I will also say for me, I've always held that diversity of perspective and diversity of backgrounds are really, are really integral in someone's business career and someone's life, frankly, in terms of making it rich. And at that stage, like I, I was seeing my, my own kind of network, like narrow. A lot of my friends were either in consulting or banking or in tech. And I wanted to make sure that I didn't really narrow too quickly in my career. And so business school is also an opportunity to really learn from others and to gain a broader diversity of ex experience and perspectives. Um, the class is really global. And I think so many people really came to it wanting to learn and grow, which I loved. When you were consulting, what were the types of companies you were consulting with and maybe what types of industries were they yeah, in? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, funnily enough, to, to date it back, um, a lot of highly regulated industries. Uh, so for instance, this was the time when um, financial regulation was really being cracked down on. So things like Dodd-Frank, Dodd um, a lot of C-car testing, so the stress testing of the largest banks. Um, so again, just to really like ground and put it in perspective, I was in my early 20s with looking at tens of billions of dollars of bank assets and understanding whether the bank was viable in terms of looking at individual variables and doing statistical modeling on them. I will say it was a um, really grounding way to think about the impact of your work, but also really interesting to understand like more broadly how very heavily regulated industries work, right? Like setting the stage for even when you start to look at things like healthcare, like beyond just the economics of a business, like what are the other outside forces which impact it? And I think that was a lesson that really stayed true. Um, but beyond that, did some very like consumer facing work as well. So continuing on with heavily regulated industries, I was based in Dallas. So we did a lot in aviation. Um, and also based out of the middle of the country, worked with a lot of retail clients as well. So everyone from grocery stores to mass retail chains um, and looking at a lot of things that really touched the consumer. When you first applied to business school, did you have like a specific goal in mind in terms of what job or career path you wanted to take after school? Yeah, absolutely. So funnily enough, I think I... I often zag as other people zig. So I was the silly person who wrote my business school admissions essay saying that I would go back to consulting uh, and then ended up as the person who turned down my consulting sponsorship and started working at a very entrepreneurial venture firm. So I will say um, that's not necessarily advice because I don't know that I've necessarily followed conventional wisdom or, or logic in that way. But I think for me, the, the period of time, the couple of months that I had off before starting business school was a great time for me to reflect and reset around what do I really wish to do and what is the impact and legacy that I wish to have, right? I think growing up in a lower income household in the way that I did, a lot of my early career and education was box ticking, right? How do I get to the best school, graduate the top of my class, get the job that folks want, that pays well, and then realize that given my background, like it would be a disservice not to do things that were really furthering diversity, 
feathering women, feathering what I would really like to see in the business world. And with that, it was when all the statistics really started being reported on in venture. Sadly, they're actually not better. I think if anything, they're worse now. But it was around when they were starting to report on the lack of funding going to women, lack of funding going to diverse founders, lack of assets being managed by women and diverse funders as well. And so really wanted to do something that was driving forward that. And again, being from more of a capitalist background in the world of HBS, found that really when you control the financing and the resources is where you can actually impact a lot of the change. So that was the start of me in, in going into the world of venture and, and looking at it from a different viewpoint. Were you supposed to return to Oliver Wyman after school or did you have a different consulting like internship lined up during the MBA? Yeah, I mean, I, I thought I would go back to OW. My, my husband still works there. I am so fond of so many of my friends there to my former bosses. Like, I adore you. It was a great experience in many ways. Um, but I think it, for me, it's um, I have a philosophy that a lot of one's regrets in life are the opportunities not taken versus the things that you actually do. And at that stage, I was fairly young, right? There's a lot ahead of us. And this is wise words for my grandmother, but in her perspective, like everyone has at least a few careers. And to be in my late 20s and say, like, this is the one thing that I will do for the rest of my life in this narrow way seemed to be a little bit of a waste of the things that I wanted to go out and try and do. And so, yeah, absolutely. Like, I thought I would absolutely go back and like OW was wonderful and offering sponsorship and the opportunity to. Um, and I'm still very good friends with many of both the folks from my start class as well as the former people that I worked with, too. I get this question all the time. Do you think an MBA is worth it? So I'm curious what your take is and if you just have any general advice around like who should or sh maybe should not pursue an MBA. Yeah, I am obviously heavily biased and as is anyone who will ever give advice. So I will give that disclaimer. Um, I found it valuable for me because it was such an opportunity to really, to really learn and grow so I, I say that in the way that I don't think anyone needs an MBA, right? In many careers now, it is not a necessity to get an MBA in order to really go where you need to go. I absolutely think you can hustle, get through the DMs on LinkedIn, whatever, whatever pathway, right? I think you actually can break through if you really work hard enough. That being said, it does give you a huge leg up when you look at the stats around an industry like venture or private equity or many of those that frankly, are those that create generational wealth, a lot of those folks do come from backgrounds with top MBAs. And I think getting into that network and frankly, learning with peers who are going to go on to have influence in those industries is a really helpful place to be from. And I will, I will lastly say it's, it's a hugely like enjoyable experience. Um, I now have friends that I spend time with like around the world, like whether it's in like Kenya or Dubai or like back in London or in Australia, where a lot of them are my friends from my MBA. And it, it kind of um, is just really beautiful to be able to develop those friendships as an adult that also cross over back into the business world. Um, so in short, like no, an MBA is absolutely not necessary. And yes, I think it provided a huge amount of value and I would absolutely invest in it again. 100% agree with that. So for women who might want to apply to a school like Harvard Business School, another top MBA program, do you have any general tips or advice for going through the application process? Oh, absolutely. And I know I'm a bit dated, but one I would say 
a lot of people I see really stress about the GMAT or the GRE and the standardized testing. I would very much say that's like the perfunctory, like tick the box and study and like get past that because what really matters is your story, right? It's actually the same way I would think about an investment decision, like absolutely like crunch the numbers and analyze what that says. But more broadly, it's about the story and like how compelling that is. So I really encourage women and and everyone who's thinking about applying to an MBA, think about actually like why an MBA? Like the funniest thing is when I went to apply, like that question was so hard and it really shouldn't have been. It sounds like a very simple question, but when you really dig deep, like why for you? Because the answer is actually going to be different for every individual. And it's really important to be able to tell the story of like why that matters in your career context, whether it's because your career is switching or whether it's because the exposure in a certain industry is really ripe or whatever that might be. So I think one, telling your personal narrative. And then I think second is really gathering information and like doing the research. Every program is so different. So for instance, I did my undergrad at UT. The UT's MBA experience is very different than Harvard's, like, which is very different to Northeastern's, like Kellogg's, like wherever that might be. And like, it's finding what's right for you, right? In the same way that you would a city that you live in or a career that you pursue. So think about whether it is something that you want to be in a city or you want to be somewhere that's a little bit more outside of that, whether you want to study purely case method or whether you want something that's a little bit more lecture-based. Do the research and be able to talk about that. And then thirdly, like connect with others who have either pursued an MBA or frankly are going through the same process and even again, if you if you lack the network, like listening to podcasts like yours, right? Or like going out there and like reading people's blogs and interviews, there's a wealth of information out there. And so I would say, again, do do the research as well as the internal introspection. Great, great advice. Can you share what your why MBA was or why Harvard MBA? Yeah, so I, I think I spoke about this a little bit before. But for me, there was still so much more to learn in the context of business, right? Like, I still don't think I'm particularly good at accounting. Um, <laughs> there are still things that, frankly, I could go and take the class and and learn and learn again. I think the second point that I brought up was the diversity of perspectives and really wanting to learn and grow from the peers in my cohort. Again, I think HBS actually does a great job of diversity of voices in the classroom. And I love the rigor of engagement that you get from a like Socratic method and case study discussion. I think that was the second. I think the third for me again was like this broadening lens of like trying to learn what I didn't yet know, right? Like though I came into it very much with a, I would say a consistent why that I wanted to more, that was very much more mission driven, that was oriented around the earliest stages of growth in a business that was really leading in terms of a diversity lens. I didn't yet know what that looked like, right? So in my current, in, in my former lens, it was continuing in the consulting world and finding where I could find that niche, right? But maybe that was a bit of a, you know, square peg round hole. And being able to find that in a different way isn't something that I would have done outside of the exploration that an MBA program allows. Um, so that was the third reason for me. And uh, apologies for my consulting speak. I still speak in threes, which is a habit that is very hard to unlearn. Well, that's a very helpful way to frame things. So I appreciate that. So you're now the founder of Kaya Ventures backing companies, including Wellen, Ounce, Swell, and more. How did you first break into venture capital? Yeah, absolutely. So it's a, it's a bit of a funny and roundabout story. So as I was beginning my MBA, 
I actually reconnected with a gentleman that I had met through a nonprofit that I volunteered with at UT. It was called, it's called Subiendo and it's Academy for Rising Leaders, largely serving Hispanic students in the Rio Grande Valley and in areas in Texas that might be a little bit, a little bit more remote or a little bit less integrated with the system of a UT of the world or an educational institution of that, of that standard. And in that, it was both a fantastic opportunity to frankly work with rising leaders who were from very different backgrounds and who had different access, frankly, than many others do. But in the same way, it was a nice way to have a connection to someone in the business world. He had run a venture firm in Austin for decades. Um, and he reached out as I got into HBS and was like, look, you seem to be posting a lot about things in the earlier stages of business. You seem to have a ton of intellectual curiosity. Have you considered venture? And I say that because like, I was really lucky to have someone who thought of me in that way because it's, um, it's a tough industry to break into. And so my first venture opportunity was helping him and like a small team, just like look at deals, think about the IP of them, think about what was differentiating and really just like gain some kind of rigor around like the structure of how to break down a particular company and, and where value drivers might be. And then I actually ended up interning and then later working for a first time fund um, while I was in my MBA and then after, um, which was a great opportunity to really be entrepreneurial in the venture space. I, I don't think people often realize that building a venture firm is building a business. You have to run your operations. You have to have a technology stack. You have to think about like how you are able to hire and grow. And so I think that was a really foundational experience in, in venture as well. But in full transparency, I think it was very much luck and happenstance in how I broke into the venture world and then a lot of hard work to frankly stay in it and build. You do not hear that often. That venture literally came to you, which is so cool. Um, obviously a very competitive industry to break into. What advice would you give women looking to break into this space? For me, I think it's so much about finding any way to do the job before you have it. And I think it's about using whatever edge you have. For me, again, coming from a consulting background, I was actually really good at diligence. I was really good at analysis, of breaking down a company, of driving hypothesis through, of understanding strategic acquisitions, of what future M&A markets would look like. But that was just me, right? I think there are other people in this world who are really good at being on the ground and sourcing founders, driving community, driving content, like building, building a platform. I think there are also people who are really good at like financial structuring. Maybe they came from a different world too. So I think it's about finding whatever edge you can applying it to the venture world, understanding the different stages and the different skill sets of venture, right? Because you absolutely have sourcing of a business, then you have the diligence or selection, you have the ability to win, right? And then you have the ability of supporting a portfolio company through to whatever an eventual exit might be. And whatever of those you can leverage before you actually have the job is an amazing foot in the door and way just to start meeting people in the industry and showing value. Definitely. To that point, do you think there are certain like skill sets that fit maybe like different stages of investing? Oh, I actually do. I was actually chatting to a mentee about this over dinner last night. She um, came from a later stage investment background and is is doing something earlier stage now. And I will say some a lot of this is preference too and finding your fit. If you're someone who loves the 
intellectual curiosity of understanding how big something can be and where a future market might grow and what the key levers are in a very lack data, lack kind of structure kind of way. Like early stage is great. It's very people driven. It's very ideas driven. It's very like, frankly, like barbelled in how do we really drive a power law through return where we fundamentally believe that every one of these investments can report, can return our fund while knowing that the reality is that our fund is going to be returned by just a few of them. And that is the early stage risk that you are taking on. The other side of that, if you're someone who's really good at like poking holes in a business model of like drilling down into data of really understanding like how to cut through things and find the insights, like later stage might be much more interesting. I have a lot of friends who hate early stage because it feels like gambling. It feels like you're pulling a bunch of things out of the air and like it's hard to make sense of, which I totally get too. And so I think again, it's um, like what resonates with you? Where do your skill sets shine? Like I'm actually quite good at Excel. Like I used to code in SQL. Like I, I enjoy those things to an extent, but I'm also very people and relationship driven. So I, I love being in the early stage, despite having a more, I would say like later stage background. Um, and I think the same is true of folks that go the other way. I think everything is learnable, but if you can find something that is naturally something that you really lean into, the the more enjoyable it'll be. Absolutely. So you've already invested in over 30 companies as an angel investor and with Kaya Ventures. What first motivated you to launch Kaya Ventures? Yeah, absolutely. So it was, it was three things for me. I think the first is that having spent my career in venture, really investing in companies from C to Series B, I found myself consistently having to tell founders that they were too early. And the solution to that was often to go raise a family and friends round. Quickly discovered that that means that you actually have to know accredited investors. And when I looked at my own background and family, neither of my parents are accredited still today. My dad works at a gas station back in Australia, and my mom is a retired teacher having worked in juvenile prison. Like, if I went to my parents and, like, family, like, it is not a viable option. I think that is something that really restricts the type of people that really gain access to venture funding, which then fundamentally restricts the innovation that we see in the US and frankly, broadly across that. So that was the first. The second is that as venture investors, we are often looking at the TAM and really determining to some extent what is able to break through, right? I think you have the context of markets that people might think is niche, like women's health is one that comes up a lot. I think it's having a moment in the media, but it still stands that despite being 50% of the population driving more than 80% of healthcare decisions in a $4 trillion market, it's still thought of as niche and like very underfunded, whether it comes to R&D, whether it comes to grant money, or frankly, whether it comes to venture capital. And so there are both areas like that, which I think are misunderstood. And then I think it's a bias of like, what could be market making, right? You hear the history of like, an Airbnb or an Uber, right? These huge businesses where frankly, a market didn't exist prior to those companies existing. And I don't necessarily think all founders get that benefit of the doubt. And so I would like to see, frankly, more diversity in the venture industry and more flexibility in trying to understand again, like what are the moonshots that can be created across industries if we fundamentally look at, frankly, some of the barriers of understanding the data. Like I'll give one last example here. I recently was reading a book around like the like founding fathers of economics and like what that looked like only to find out that actually like work in the home was never counted in productivity. 
which means like the fundamental data around how we looked at productivity and how we studied economics was misguided because it essentially lacked a whole bunch of GDP and like productivity data that when women essentially were set to enter the workforce, they were essentially entering a workforce that was a workforce of men, right? Versus now having to backfill for work in the home, which is then paid labor if it is not done by, frankly, a mother or family member. And again, like this is essentially what underpins the care economy now, which I think is the theme that I look at as well as many others. And so again, it's this differential understanding of how do we actually assess markets and see opportunity? And then the last point that I that I feel fairly strongly about is anytime that we're investing in these spaces of impact, so many people point to philanthropy as being the right way to funnel capital, which I strongly disbelieve in. I'm, I'm a huge believer in philanthropy and of giving. That being said, I don't think at the cost or at the or at the deficit of investing in diverse teams and investing in impactful spaces, we can drive a huge amount of both financial return as well as impact by investing in venture in spaces that really need the innovation that we wish to see. And so again, in, in the very short, it's it's really like, how do we create a world of which we wish to see? And how do we drive incredible financial returns while also driving impact? So that's that's a little bit of what pushed me as well as a bunch of very kind founders who gave me a little bit of a kick in the butt. It's totally insane to me that women's health is considered a niche market. Just totally nuts. Um, so tell us a little bit more about the types of industries you're planning to invest in, the stage companies, um, anything you're particularly excited about investing in right now. Yeah, absolutely. So I typically look at the pre-seed, so fairly early, um, very much driven by, again, founders, their vision, where they wish to build, what their initial business model is. I typically look at things in digital health, the care economy, as I mentioned, and financial services. Broadly, our thesis is really around wellness, but I think about wellness quite broadly. I, I was a psychology major in undergrad, so Maslow's hierarchy is still somewhat drilled into my brain. But when you think about that, right, like the basics of it are food and shelter and like these aspects of safety. You get all the way up to the top with self-actualization. And I think venture is a bit of an industry where we funded a bunch of things at the top, right? It's the, the 1% of the 1%. And yet there are actually still a lot of things more towards the base of the pyramid when it comes to wellness. It's it's financial wellness, it's occupational wellness, it's having social communities and safe spaces. So one example of this is a company that I invested in called Ounce. They sit at the intersection of affordable housing and affordable care. Again, it's a space that isn't necessarily typical of venture in a true sense. But when you think about that, like without access to affordable housing and without access to affordable care and care coordination, we're leaving a large part of the population behind. And then as you look at the business model of that, frankly, there's a huge amount of capital within the affordable housing market that really could be bettered by technology and what that looks like. In addition, frankly, to a huge amount of Medicaid spend that really needs to be channeled to drive better outcomes that are also more cost-effective. And so for me, again, it's it's really finding creative solutions to some of the biggest challenges we have. And those are the predominant models that I'm currently looking at to do so. For our listeners, can you explain what a pre-seed stage business typically looks like? Absolutely. And thank you. I, I, I absolutely think that it's um, a bit of a disservice that we always use the words pre-seed and seed and series A and such because the the benchmarks for those change so often. So I will I will more narrowly say right now, I would, 
a pre-seed is often at a sub $10 million valuation. So in the, in the later stage, we would call that a market cap to some degree, but usually it's a first round of institutional funding that they're raising. They may be somewhat pre-product, like pre-traction, pre-revenue in some ways, but oftentimes they, they may have some initial beta in the market or again, some initial sales, whatever that might be. So I would say it's early. In many ways, we're really trying to close the friends and family gap and be institutional capital that really guides founders towards raising a more institutional seed, realizing that a lot of founders in these spaces are first-time founders and that there is really an art and a science to understanding how you go about telling a compelling story, how you go about fundraising and all that comes with team building as well. The last thing that I will say is companies that scale really quickly often go from a couple of founders to a team of 50 really quickly and scaling someone's leadership journey is also something that I think a lot about. For founders um, hoping to stay up to date on like current benchmarks and like what a pre-seed round looks like in this moment of time, are there certain like data sources that you specifically look to or is that more just like being in the know and like talking to investors, would you say? Yeah, it's both. So you can certainly look at databases from Carter, from Crunchbase, from PitchBook and get the aggregate information. I think you certainly then need to break it down by sector and geo oftentimes because I think they it can often vary greatly. I I often think that averages are actually deeply unhelpful because it gets rid of actually most of the interesting kind of information of what's happening. Um, and then I would say absolutely the networks are important. I think as an early stage founder, surrounding yourself by founders that you can have candid conversations with around what's happening in the market. Like, what are they saying? What are VCs pushing back on? Like how have folks responded to their valuation? If folks are able to share like roughly what they raised their last round at and what that was a multiple of and which metrics the VCs paid attention to, it's um, really to your advantage to have information in a market where frankly, information is really lacking in terms of the transparency. So I'm a, I'm a huge fan of like, the most that you can arm yourself with, both in terms of what's aggregated from large data sources that are public, as well as what you can hear anecdotally. Like I would literally just start doing my own little database. Like if I was going out and raising a seed round and I'll make it up, say I was just on my desk, say I was a candle business. Like I would go talk to everyone else who had like a physical good business who was anywhere near related to my space and try to get an understanding of like what they raised at, what multiple that was at and like who funded them because that's essentially the closest data that you're going to get. So I would do your own comps. Definitely. Um, so when you're looking at potential investment opportunities, one, how are you sourcing these deals? And two, what goes into your diligence process? What are you looking for at a pre-seed stage? Yeah, absolutely. So I would say sourcing is in a few parts. I'm certainly doing outbound. So like going out and looking at things and market mapping in terms of where do I think solutions are missing and where do I think are white spaces and gaps. So some of that is certainly outreach. Obviously, the second bucket is really the founders that I've invested in sending me companies that they think really fit my thesis, which frankly is usually the best deal flow that I get because it's from both a trusted source and, and folks who know me well. And then I would say it's a large network of VCs that I've worked with before, founders that I've known over the years, as well as alumni from previous schools, whether it's HBS or UT, and a lot of different accelerators that I've either judged at, mentored at, um, in addition to a lot of the amazing communities of women primarily that I'm part of. So I'm part of things like Transact Global, which is a wonderful community of women GPs, of women in VC, which is a huge Slack channel and community as well. 
um, or raise. Like I, I could name like so many of them. It's it's been an, it's been tremendously wonderful to see them pop up over the years. So I would say it's a it's a healthy amount of inbound in addition to the outbound I do in terms of sourcing, and then in terms of diligence, it's it's really interesting because I think when you're looking at the pre-seed, you largely are underwriting the team in addition to the market, what you think the business will look like at scale, and then to some degree, the deal dynamics in terms of what they're raising at, who else might be in the round, and how you can really see that getting them to the next stage where hopefully you get a markup and they go on to the next level of success. Um, I think one of the biggest risks that we don't necessarily talk about when you're investing early is that there will be later stage capital. Meaning if I invest in this first round, they'll be able to go raise in 12 to 18 months from now in order to continue because companies end when they run out of cash. Um, and so also doing diligence around, okay, who, who in my network do I actually see being the natural next funder? And this is controversial, but like, who do I, who do I see the potential exit paths going towards? Because I think that not necessarily do you need to have the approach of, I think we're going to be acquired by X in 10 years or whatever that is. But for a venture investor, we're looking at multiple different avenues for acquisition and what that looks like. Meaning I love to see, okay, what might this look like? Might it look like an IP acquisition by strategic? Might it look like a private equity acquisition? Might it look like an acquisition for a strategic based on this? Like what are the different avenues apart from IPO? Um, so I just certainly do some diligence around that as well, knowing that frankly, it's very hard to project out seven to 10 years of, of what something looks like. Why is the topic of acquisition or exit uh, controversial? I think that there's a view that, um, early stage founders ought not to be thinking about the exit because their mind isn't of the right space. <laughs> Transparently, I think it's 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 not nice to judge in that way. I think there are many aspects of which founders are a bit damned if they do and damned if they don't, meaning if they talk about exit, they're hit for it. And if they don't talk about exits, they're hit for it. So I think that, frankly, we just need a little bit more grace. Um, but to me, being thoughtful is never a bad thing. Like thinking forward about the future is not a bad thing. And so Absolutely, it's controversial because people think that founders' heads aren't in the right game of building if they're already thinking about an exit from the early stage. But I don't know, maybe it's because of my background. I, I like to have people that are just thoughtful about what the future looks like. Yeah. I also feel like maybe that could be like an excuse for a pass on a deal, for instance. Um, what is something exciting coming up for you and Kaya Ventures? Anything you want to share or plug here? Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Um, I mean, we're still new to the LA community. And so that's been something that's been really fun for us. Um, so for us, it's going to be doing a lot more in-person events and building community in the LA ecosystem. Very long LA, despite not being here for, for all that long of a time. Um, so that's what we're really excited for as well as just continuing to build our community of founders and funders. Very excited for that and to be part of the LA tech startup eco ecosystem as well. Where can people find you and Kaya Ventures? Absolutely. So I'm predominantly on LinkedIn, which I know is also not traditional to venture. Uh, I do have a Twitter and I do have an Instagram, which you're welcome to follow as well. Um, so absolutely, you can either follow my personal account or Kaya Ventures account on LinkedIn, Instagram, Twitter, wherever you might find us. I need to take a, a, a leaf out of your book one day, Ruffin, and, and be on TikTok, but I'm not yet that cool. 
it's been a journey. I did not expect myself to be here on TikTok. So anyways, and then finally, can you share a female founder, investor, or leader who inspires you and a little bit about why? Absolutely. So I actually, I'll take this from recency just because there's, there's too many that are great that I would feel bad choosing. But I recently read Ursula Burns' book. She was the former CEO of, um, of Xerox. And I think for me, it was such an interesting story of someone who was really before their time, right? In many ways, she paved the way in terms of what it looked like to grow in an organization, to really create a pathway for others and to lead in a way that was actually her own, right? Her own style and her own way of leading and her own voice. And I, I just admire and respect her so much because it's often hard to be the first, but someone needs to be. And I think the women that have done that in any one of their given industries are just so impressive to me and I deeply admire. Very cool. My mom actually started her career with Xerox. So that's a fun tie into this. Anyways, well, thank you so much for joining the show. Um, this was so fun and I appreciate you sharing a lot of your insights and just being here today. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Play Bridge podcast. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. And for more updates, make sure to follow us on social at Bridge Club. That's at B-R-Y-D-G-E-C-L-U-B. At Bridge Club on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube.